You're listening to Manner of Speaking with Greg Mayu. Today's episode Fairweather Enlightenment. And now, a word from Councillor Carl Benedict. The suggestion that grief has stages has been controversial ever since 1969 when the Swiss psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross first proposed them in her groundbreaking book on death and dying. Still, as a licensed counselor who works with grieving clients on a regular basis, I have found that sharing my own understanding of Kubler-Ross's stages can help clients make sense of their grief, which I hope this video will do for you. But first, a few cautions. The stages of grief are overlapping and recycling. So even though we tend to move through them sequentially, we will also move back and forth between them and even recycle through them repeatedly in smaller circles over time. Okay, so um, when you think about all the other investments when you've lost money and you think about this situation, do you ever think about other ways that you'd like to uh, address the situation besides legal? All the time. I dream of beating the shit out of Tom. <laughs> and, and, and I wake up from those dreams as satisfied as I get. Uh, there, it, it, it feels good to beat the shit out of him. This is Neil, 63 years old, Harvard graduate, father of one. And despite the violence of his dreams, his outward appearance is one of an aging hippie in pursuit of spiritual enlightenment. He's the type of person who, in discussing the impending demise of our species, as he often does, will offer up this as a solution. At the end of the first half of the next Super Bowl, synchronized at that very moment, if 50 million of us, if we chant, That'll flip the energy. Although now divorced, broke, and living with three roommates in Watertown, Mass., back in 1997, he lived in the wealthy Boston suburb of Newton with his wife and son. It was around that time that he invested his life savings in a friend's real estate venture. And although Neil isn't shy about singling him out, for the sake of this podcast, that friend will just be known as Tom. What was your read on him as a person when you first met him? Did he seem like a schemer? Did he seem like a solid guy? Did he seem successful? He seemed pretty successful at the time. He was actually working for a mortgage broker and making, I think he was making like a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, he dressed 
that way, and his son was in the same kind of upper middle class Newton soccer league stuff as my son. And we got to talking, you know, to dads with their sons. I mean, he didn't even ask me personally. He said if I knew anybody who wanted to invest and you'd get your money, you'd get interest, and it would be backed by these high-end properties in Wellesley and Newton. So I'm not sure if you want to disclose this, but uh, how much money are we talking about? We're talking about $95,000. Over the next 10 years, Tom was making good on his contract with Neil sending monthly payments on his loan with interest. Then, in 2008, the mortgage crisis happened. Tom had some properties that were foreclosed on. Payments to Neil started becoming more sporadic, and Tom started getting not so easy to get a hold of. I used to know where he lived, and I visited with him, but then he moved, and now whenever he started in the last couple of years to send, to, when he sent me anything, he would always send it from a post office box. So those were not good signs. Now it's the spring of 2009. Phone calls are the only way Neil can get a hold of Tom. And since he won't answer Neil's phone number, he has to use other people's phones in order to trick Tom into answering. He's been waiting for some while now, kind of felt like he's kind of waiting for an excuse to act offended and stop relating. And he found that excuse a couple of months ago. Since I have to call him from other phones, I called him from my girlfriend's phone. And he, ne he virtually never calls back. But this one time, he called back, and I didn't expect it, so I didn't tell my girlfriend anything. And he's, he's, he doesn't have very many social skills. He's kind of a, a troglodyte, kind of, you know, macho male businessman, kind of, kind of that kind of person. My girlfriend picks up the phone. He says, who's this? <laughs> and she, she's used to having crank callers and men call. And she says, well, who's this? You called me. You tell me who you are. You kiss my ass. He said, well, somebody <laughs> called me from there. The, well, the, I didn't call you from here. Who are you? Who are you? What do you do? I heard her having this interaction on the phone. And finally, it just twigged for me. Oh, is that Tom? Give me the phone. I, I talked to him very respectfully. Oh, can you get me the money? Is, is, you know, what's the problem? But afterwards, he sent me this letter, which I'm, I might have in my room. I could read it oh, to you. Yeah. Okay, pause it for a second. I'll find it. Dear Neil, please thank Melissa for her courteous conversation this past Saturday. That's his effort at being sarcastic. He was really pissed, evidently, you'll find from the rest of the letter. And her name isn't even Melissa. <laughs> so I don't even know where he got Melissa. You are lucky to have her on your team. Please thank her for giving me some inspiration too. In the future, please contact my attorney David Ford. 
for future correspondence of any kind. This will eliminate the inconvenience of Melissa and I having to converse. By following this procedure, I believe we will be able to more effectively communicate. Please contact me only through my attorney for further interactions. And now there's a story about this too, because I called his lawyer three times and his lawyers never called me back either. And I've called him since and told him, listen, I didn't lend your attorney the money. I lent you the money as a friend of mine. And I'd like you to explain to me what's going on. And he just hemmed and hawed. My girlfriend, who is wonderful, offered to call back and try and apologize and smooth over, even though she had nothing to apologize for. And so she called him and started apologizing, and he hung up on her. Because he doesn't want it to be okay. He I mean, this is what happens with kind of people who don't, have integrity at some level and we've now reached that level is that they want to find excuses for making it your fault so now it's that he's upset that he wasn't handled respectfully and he doesn't remember that he was rude that he didn't that none of this have, ha, would have to happen if he'd just fucking call me and tell me what's going on. So, shall we try and call him? Sure. You've got your phone? Sure. So here are the five stages of grieving as I understand them and have experienced them myself. The first is denial, which does not mean we are refusing to acknowledge the loss. Rather, it is a shock absorber built of numbness and disbelief that protects us from becoming overwhelmed by giving our minds time to prepare for experiencing the immense pain of the loss. As such, a major loss can leave us feeling numb without even realizing it. Denial is a normal, natural, and helpful part of grieving, but becoming stuck in it for a prolonged period of time can lead to unresolved grief. Hi Tom, this is Neil. Did you ever call, did you ever call me back? Uh, I, I didn't get a message, so and I haven't gotten the check for, for this month. Have you sent it? Uh-huh. Uh, so when do you think you'll get it to me? Uh-huh. And, and I'm really concerned about the principal, too. Uh, you had told me... You, yeah, you had... You had told me a couple of years ago that you'd like to pay it off, so... Uh-huh. So, kind of, what should, what should we do? 
Okay, I'd appreciate that. Okay, so I'll expect that kind of next week. Great, that'd be helpful. Thanks. Yeah, always he's going to send me something next time. Is that what he said? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was his reaction when he realized it was you? Uh, he acts normal. He acts like we're in communication. It's very strange. It's very bizarre. Anger often follows denial, but not for everyone. The anger of grieving is protective by allowing us to move closer to dealing with the loss, but not so close as to become overwhelmed. By focusing on the blame, we can distract ourselves from the pain, offering us a buffer from our tremendous hurt until we are ready to move closer to the pain. the shit out of Tom and I wake up from those dreams as satisfied as I get it, it, it feels good to beat the shit out of because when I wake up I feel pretty powerless about getting my money back and I don't have a good feeling about my life savings and that kind of powerlessness kind of gets people pretty ugly. And I feel pretty ugly and pretty scared. I didn't think of myself as a person who, you know, getting ready to retire, have to be thinking about whether I'm going to spend money going out to a medium-priced restaurant. I mean, I, I could be paying rent, I could be buying a car, which I need. I could be eating, which I do less of. <laughs> and so he's like, he's like becoming my Bernie Madoff, who's made off with my money. <laughs> you know, part of what I deal with is what an idiot I am. You know, it's like, how do I deal with the person himself and deal with the person inside my head who said, you stupid fool. How did you get yourself into this again? Because as with any story, I remember all the times I've lost money. Whenever I pick up the phone to call him, I remember all the stupid investments I've ever made. And unfortunately, there are enough to remember. Tom, 
I'd like to leave a brief message. I'm really concerned about my $95,000. I feel really terrible. It's my life savings that you have, Tom. And I would really hope that that would at least merit your calling me back. You can call me back. You have the number. And I would really appreciate knowing what's going on. I would really appreciate if you respected me. It would be really nice for $95,000 to at least know that I could reach you and that you could tell me what's going on with my life savings. Tom, please, please, thank you. About a month later, I dropped in on Neil again. Still no checks from Tom. The voicemail you just heard was left via my phone because Tom wouldn't answer which means he's keeping track of Neil's alternate phone numbers, and he's pretty much run out of those. I did, in fact, get him a couple of times, and he hung up on me. So that he, he hung up on you. Yeah. So how far into the conversation did you get? Uh, two words. And here's the latest development, which is like breaking news. Uh, yesterday, I got this letter. I'm going to read it to you. Dear Neil, Please accept my apologies for my behavior over the past weeks. Obviously, my financial situation has deteriorated to the point of bankruptcy. I have lost all my real estate to foreclosure. The economy has shattered me. I am no longer able to continue paying you. I mentioned this to you in September, and frankly, I am surprised I was able to continue paying you for as long as I have. Realizing I am in good company, as Chrysler, GM... As you do in situations like this, you speak to people who've had some experience. So I spoke to a friend of mine, and he said you really have to get after him legally. So I inquired about that, and there's, unless you get a lawyer, you can't do that. I didn't want to spend that money. But you can go to small claims court for anything under $2,000. Um, and I filed just like the morning before I got this letter, and I wrote him a letter. If, uh, do you want to hear that? Uh, uh, absolutely. Okay. Kubler-Ross called the next stage bargaining, but I prefer undoing, which I think better describes what happens next. The undoing stage moves us even closer to the pain as we find ourselves obsessing on every detail of the loss including what led up to it, how it could have happened, and what we could have done differently as our mind tries to undo the unacceptable. Undoing is often the longest stage and is a reflection of the tortuous path the mind must follow to eventually accept the unacceptable truth that I cannot fix this. Dear Tom, my birthday was last weekend and I spent it worrying about money. You can imagine when a friend who has your life savings then won't return your calls, then hangs up on you. I was beside myself. Bankruptcy was the best I could imagine. It got darker from there. What happened to EVRE, the Wellesley House, all that stuff in Baltimore? Geez, you could have at least sat down with me like a friend and worked out the best we two could work out together, working in good faith. 
That's what I want from you now, to sit down and work out together something. I just got your letter. Yesterday I filed in small claims court. I want you to help me get some of my money back, even if it's reduced. I'm willing to sit down with you and work out what's fair and possible now. Less maybe, but not nothing. Please call me if you are willing to work out something where we might mutually be treated fairly and respectfully. Midland Funding versus Aaron DeFurry. Two months later, Neil goes into small claims court. There's no sign of Tom, and assuming the Waltham County Courthouse wouldn't approve of my sound gear, I snuck in a pocket recorder, which is why it sounds like this. You are Neil Anderson. Is Thomas uh, he here? He's not here, he's not many, so he's the father that he communicates. Once Neil finished filling out some paperwork, we convened on the front steps of the courthouse. In hindsight, this wasn't the best idea, as there was a parade of dump trucks about 50 feet away. Uh, you want to give me a recap? Well, I won! Motherfucker, I won! I won! I'm a winner! I'm a winner! I'm cool! We're number one! We're at the top of the heap! But I'm really no further than I was, because he, he'll be, I'll get a note that says he has to pay, but then I have to collect it. So because he didn't show... He didn't show, I win. Well, that was easy. Yeah. Uh, was how really much easy. money did you sue for? Uh, $1,995, because the limit's 2000 Okay. And you're into him for about 93. 94. About 94. But who's quibbling? You know, if I get 93 back at this point, I'm cool with that. Well, oh, you, yeah. you, I was going to say, all you have to do I is, you is file outfit, the Greg. suit 45,000 times, and then uh, you have the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> If I can find out where the fuck he is, all I have is his post office box. In the months that followed, Neil ended up having to pay the sheriff's office $300 to track Tom down and get him to appear before a judge. That would have been the first time you had seen him in, in the yeah. flesh in quite a while. Yeah. Can you describe what that was like? Um, we waited for about three hours to get in front of the judge, and the judge must have taken five minutes. And Tom was sitting over there, I was looking at him, looking at him straight in the eye, and he wouldn't look in my direction. He just, he was just like, kind of straight ahead businessman. And the judge asked him what he could pay, and he said $100 a month. And I tried to talk to him about the $95,000 he owed me. And he just wasn't interested. After that court date, Tom sent Neil a payment of $100, and since then, nothing. So after you factor in the $300 Neil paid the sheriff's office, he essentially paid $200 for the privilege of confronting Tom face to face. And he wasn't phased at all. There was no morality for him around taking my life savings. It was powerful to see how he kind of took my life savings and I let him. 
It's like that's partly what you realize too, that nothing happens that you don't allow to happen, that you don't set up. And that was a bitter pill, it still is. Depression is the stage in which we finally feel the full impact of the loss with all its implications. Previous stages have given us task and time to prepare ourselves to experience the full pain of the loss. And now a wiser part of our mind, a gatekeeper of sorts, knows it's time to face the unthinkable. We have suffered a horrible loss and cannot do anything to change that reality. Okay. Okay. Um, what, what, uh, what do you have to tell me? All right. So the big thing, the big news is yesterday my girlfriend broke up with me. Um, I went to Colorado with her last week and we ran a workshop and she was really unsatisfied with kind of what happened and I kind of got, I kind of got jacked up a little bit. We asked people to introduce themselves and then I said, why don't you, if you're willing, why don't you introduce yourself as an alter ego, a person who's truly you, but a person who doesn't get airtime in your usual, uh, and that was interesting. People said some interesting things. I probably said a little too much. I tried to talk about, you know, some of the things that I'm interested in, you know, like the climate, climate change. And she felt that I was talking at people. It was just like, let me pontificate. And so that spun into some other things. You know, there are always issues. So there were some other issues. And I feel like just really devastated, kind of just kind of on the edge of tears, but can't quite reach it, can't quite let go in that way. And I haven't been able to really concentrate very much. Didn't sleep. I slept about an hour last night. So I'm kind of sitting here trying to just kind of hold myself and kind of just get through the day, really. Mm. Yeah. And it sounds like you had a long night, too. I did. I did have a long night. Mm. Yeah. Um, wishing and a hoping and a hoping and a praying. Okay, I'm, I'm cheating the timeline a little bit here because Neil's girlfriend actually dumped him about a week before his date in small claims court. I should also mention that a few months earlier, for reasons that are still unclear to me, Neil's 13-year-old son severed all ties with him. He won't take his calls, won't answer his emails, and refuses to attend the family therapy sessions Neil had arranged with his ex-wife. That was a whole connection that was happening. You know, I saw him, you know, three, four times a week. And then kind of out of nowhere, that whole thing ended. I suddenly was at a place that was really a scary place. You know, really a low place. 
like a bad acid trip, like some of your shows that you talked about, you know, getting a guide for a bad acid trip. Well, I need, I'm trying to be my own guide because this feels often like a bad acid trip where this has all gone. It's kind of, I have to somehow reinvent myself. After that last interview in the fall of 2010, I didn't see Neil again for two years. And if he succeeded in creating his own guide for a bad acid trip, it's in the persona of spiritual guru Herbie Perlman. That's the name of Neil's alter ego who hosts a radio show at Boston College. That's the name he used to announce his candidacy for president on the tantric ticket. And to some degree, that's who it feels like I'm talking to when we start recording. Neil. Yeah. Um, it's been a while. Yo, it has been a while. It's been a while since we've seen each other. Mm. I think Neil's in Herbie mode because in addition to my podcast, this interview is being videotaped by Neil's friend Brian for the Herbie Perlman website. You want to uh, do a little clap for camera so he can see? Got that? Got it. Okay. Neil seems to be hanging in there, still living in the same Watertown apartment, his relationship with his son is still on the rocks, but his girlfriend has taken him back. And after all the phone calls, all the letters, and all the legal hoops, Neil finally got Tom to look him in the eye. And all it took was a cup of coffee. The only way I support myself is I do executive coaching. And one of the people I executive coach is at a scone place in Newton, what is West Newton. I forget the name of it or else I'd give them a little plug because I like their scones and they're nice enough people. But be that at it may, I once saw Tom there. He was ordering coffee when we came in and I just happened to nudge him so he spilled his coffee on his white shirt because he's like working for the government now like at the Defense Department and making like $77,000 a year and he wouldn't pay me a fucking dime. And he was he's still driving a Volvo because when you go bankrupt, you can hold on to your Volvo. Okay. Oh! I said, I, when I did that, I said, as if I hadn't noticed who it was, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, can I pay because I knew, like, money pay. Can I pay for having your shirt laundered? And then, I, oh, Tom! Tom! <laughs> and he's, he's like, he's pissed, he's shocked, he's kind of tongue-tied, and you know those kind of looks, when you look someone in the eye and you see that if there was a sword involved, it would cut right through you. He doesn't say a, a word. He didn't say a word. He just looked at me in the eye and started like getting like, you know how people get 
And then he just walked out. I still have dreams about putting sugar in Tom's gas tank, you know, sneaking up. You want to put sugar in his Volvo? Yes. I, these are not my most enlightened moments. I'm an enlightened person, but that was not a moment of enlightenment. And I have moments like that. I have a sort of like fair weather enlightenment. It's the kind of enlightenment that if things are good and I'm getting what I need and want and stuff, I think like, God, God. There are other moments when I just like go, oh, and Thomas is like Anatta, Anicca, and Dukkha all put together. He's like nothing. He's not like, it's, it wasn't personal. And that's the thing about kind of business people. And he was always, it wasn't about having a personal relationship. I mean, it wasn't like he was screwing me personally. I happened to be available and a sucker. So he did it. Acceptance comes after we have closed our eyes, kicked and screamed, pleaded and begged, cried and hurt, and then finally figured out how to live life in the new normal. We still hurt, but not in the same way as before. We focus more on the present and future, including our relationships, and much less on the past, which we now remember in its wholeness, rather than obsessively focusing on the loss. There is no such thing as closure, because the loss has changed us forever. Our journey to acceptance has allowed us to build a new normal that incorporates the loss as a loss, and in the process we have become wiser. We no longer take things as much for granted, we value each moment more, and we have changed our priorities to the things that really matter. Therefore, major loss is not only a painful problem, but also a bittersweet opportunity as we learn to find the serenity to accept what we cannot change and the courage to change what we can, which is ourselves. I think of him now as my sort of dildo. He, he like, that was a teaching, you know, and sometimes you have to really get fucked. You have to get really fucked. And he really fucked me up the ass. He did. I'm not laughing. I don't want you to laugh either, Brian, because this is not funny. This was my life savings. But the dildo uh, metaphor is, uh, is quite comical, I must say. The guy was a drone. He was a drone dildo. Tom <laughs> used to go to prostitutes. When we were talking, I'd sit it, I'd, I'd buy him lunch every once in a while because I wanted to keep him like giving me my money back. This, like this was over 10 years. I'd buy him lunch and he'd tell me about these prostitutes he was fucking. I mean, he's married and he has one kid. I met him because my kid and his kid played soccer together. And you can, you can erase that part about him fucking prostitutes in case his wife sees this. It would really hurt my feelings if his wife ever heard that he, Tom, a <laughs> was fucking prostitutes. 
and eating lunch at Whole Foods and telling me they were better than his wife. But I would not want that to get out. So you should really make sure that this, like, you have, like, a password and another password. In order to hear this shit, you should need, like, seven levels of passwords. HerbieProman.com. That's where it'll be. That's where it'll be. Tom of prostitute fucker. Hey, but do, you know, let's like, let's do like a ohm, cause I, I'm sensing that my like enlightenment is like being dragged down by some other darker part of me. Okay. Are you sensing yeah. that too? Um, I wouldn't have phrased it that way, but I'm sensing that you're in uh, conflict with your enlightened side. There's your... no conflict. There's no conflict. There is no fucking conflict. I have almost no rage left in me. Almost no fucking rage at all. So what can I say? Want to do an ohm? Ohm. I feel better. I feel better. That was nice. It was nice. I'm going to take a deep breath. The bottom line is this, grieving is an individual experience that takes time and effort, and as long as you are not persistently avoiding the feelings associated with the loss, or endlessly obsessing on the loss, or remaining unable to function, or behaving destructively or self-destructively, then your style of grieving is probably right for you. Thank you for watching this video, and keep paying attention to your life. Until next time. Herbie Perlman can be reached for spiritual counseling or executive coaching at HerbiePerlman.com. His radio show, The News at Dawn, focusing on his spiritual practice and climate change, can be heard on Wednesday mornings at WZBC in Newton, Mass., 90.3 FM.